I invite you loved ones to now turn in your Bibles to find the scripture passage we will consider this morning from Isaiah chapter 2. You can find that in our Pew Bibles on page 1,600, or sorry, 1,062. We'll read the whole chapter of Isaiah 2. Hear now the word of God. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go Out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You have abandoned your people. The house of Jacob, they are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp their hands with pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. The land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what the fingers, their fingers have made. So man will be brought low. And mankind humbled, do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols, of, their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May his Holy Spirit add his blessing to it as we consider it together this morning. Well, loved ones, we all long for fulfillment in life, right? We all long for purpose. 
We want to come to the end of our life and arrive sort of at the top of a mountain of our own achievements. We want to be able to look back at our life and see that it was all worth something, that it meant something more than just passing pleasures that we had along the way. Well, here in this passage, we consider, we hear that human history does in fact have a final destination, that everything is in a sense flowing in the same direction towards this point of finality, this point of purpose, this point of glory. It is symbolized in this passage by the mountain of the Lord. It's sort of on the horizon out in front of us. And the question is, are you walking in the light towards this mountain of the Lord with hope? Or are you kind of hiding out in the lowlands of this world, in a landscape that is hopelessly flat, with no purpose, no end goal in sight? Where are you this morning? This morning, God, he wants to show us from this passage that he alone will be exalted in the end and that he will mend this broken world. Isaiah is giving us a picture of the end of human history here. And we see that God will graciously exalt those who are humbled by his grace, those who turn to him to receive from him. But the proud in this life, those who exalt themselves, who try to hide away from him, they will be humbled in the end by his mighty splendor and his coming wrath. Now, to see these things, we'll consider three points. First, the mountain, secondly, the lowlands, and then lastly, the light of hope. So the mountain, the lowlands, and the light of hope. First, Isaiah gives us this glorious glimpse here, this glorious picture of the mountain of the Lord in verses 1 through 5. And what is Isaiah talking about, uh, describing this mountain? Well, it's important to realize that almost all ancient people thought of mountains with symbolic value. Uh, very, uh, a very religious kind of symbol for ancient people. And we can consider why this is so. Um, the mountain, think of this, it symbolizes purity in the sense that it is at this place that's lifted up, nearly touching the skies, and so it's preserved from all the impurities that are down below in the valleys. And so a mountain is a symbol of heavenly purity. The mountain also symbolizes perspective. It is a place a vision. You can see everything around you on the horizon from the top of a mountain. You have no blind spots, right? Therefore, the mountain is a symbol of impartial truth and justice. You can see it fully, see it clearly. The mountain also symbolizes protection. It is a place of strength and refuge. You can see any enemy who's coming from afar, and you always have the high ground to protect and defend yourself. So mountains are symbols also of peace and rest. And mountains also symbolize prosperity too, or abundance of life. It is a place of life. Why? Well, rain falls or snow melts on mountains and there are natural springs on mountains. And so that water flows and trickles down the mountains in every direction, providing fertile land for all below. So the mountain is also a symbol of abundant life and prosperity. Now, considering what it symbolizes, 
Well, it's easy to see how the ancients came to consider and see mountains as this powerful symbol, right, of purity, perspective, protection, and prosperity. We could say in a word that the mountain symbolized peace, but peace in the sense of God's peace, shalom, that full kind of holistic peace. For these reasons, the symbol of a mountain in ancient times was always associated with heavenly places where God the Creator dwells. Mountains, they're kind of these natural symbolic ladders that are going up to meet God. In a way, they show us that the blessings symbolized by the mountain, they are gifts derived from God. They come only from God himself who meets us on the mountain. Therefore, if you want truth, If you want justice, you want peace, you want rest and prosperity, you need to go to the God of the mountains. One author writes this. He says, Salvation in the Old Testament is always viewed in spatial terms with respect to space, meaning that salvation is found where Yahweh is present. And more often than not, Yahweh, that is the Lord, Yahweh seems to be present and reveals himself to humanity on mountains. And this is fascinating to consider. We'll do a brief survey here that we consider way back in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, Eden, the Garden of Eden, paradise, it's presented to us as this garden that's been placed, situated upon a mountaintop. How do we know that? Because rivers flow downstream from the Garden of Eden. And so God's first temple palace was there on a mountaintop. And when we consider the rest of the Bible story, we find that God's favorite meeting place, it seems, is on mountains. And we can kind of imagine all of scripture put before us kind of like this ridge line of mountains, the sacred sierras of the Bible or the grand tetons of redemptive history. In other words, you know, what, what are the m- momentous moments where God showed up on mountains to meet his people? What has God done on mountains throughout the Bible? Well, we first consider the Old Testament where he put Adam in Eden. We already saw that, which was on a mountain. Then he restarted humanity, in a sense, with Noah after the flood on top of a mountain. He then tested Abraham in his obedience, where? On a mountaintop with Isaac. He spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Mount Horeb. Then he took Israel to Mount Sinai and gave them his law from the mountain, right? King Solomon, according to his father David's purpose and design, he built God's house, his temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And of course, there are other examples like Elijah with his great showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, we find that Jesus seems to be always doing in the New Testament things that are important, big things on hills or on mountains. Jesus began his ministry by defeating Satan on a mountain in his third temptation when Satan took him up to a high place on a mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, right? And then Jesus preached his famous sermon on the mount, right? He often snuck away, Jesus, to commune in prayer with his father, where? On mountaintops. Then he was transfigured in glory 
in front of his three disciples on a mountain. Also, we consider the high, highest point, the climax of his earthly ministry. He was crucified on a mountain, Mount Calvary, Golgotha. But that's not all. He then, after his resurrection, gave his great commission to his disciples on a mountain. And from that mountain, he ascended into the heavenly places, to the right hand of God the Father, on the heavenly Mount Zion. And he has promised to come back again. And where will he come back? On the Mount of Olives. So what is God telling us with all these mountain experiences? Well, he's saying this, I think. That humanity was made to dwell with God on the mountain. Now, not an actual literal mountain, but rather to dwell with God in the sacred space that the mountain symbolizes. We were made for the sacred space where God meets his people and gives them shalom, his peace, his fullness. In a word, the mountain of the Lord symbolically represents what the world should be, what the world, in a sense, could have been if it were not for the fall, if it were not for sin entering in. We should live in a place where peace is derived from God, our Creator, where we have nearness with Him, but that is not the world that we live in today, is it? We live in the lowlands, and that's our second point After showing us the mountain of the Lord in this passage, Isaiah then kind of takes us down into the lowlands, the shadowlands, where we find humanity has fallen from the high tops of the mountains, kind of like pebbles uh, tumbling downstream. Here we are, we've landed into the lowlands of this world. We've estranged ourselves from the source of light and peace. God And that has resulted in the very opposite, the polar opposite of his shalom, which is dark chaos. And that's where we find ourselves. You know, this vision of the lowlands that Isaiah paints for us, it reminds us, or it reminds me, of a scene in uh, the movie The Lion King. And in this movie, you remember how Mufasa tells his son Simba that everything that the light touches is their kingdom. And then Simba... In his curiosity, says to his father, well, what about that shadowy place over there? And Mufasa replies, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. Well, that's where Isaiah takes us in this passage. He takes us on a tour through that shadowy place of our worlds, apart from the light of God. And this is where we ourselves have gone by our own willful disobedience. Isaiah says in verse 6 that the Lord had left his people. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. This means that God had given them over to their sins. In a sense, he let Israel have what they wanted. And this is still happening today. God lets people have what they want, which is often so self-destructive. When we look at the world today that's broken, and plagued with hatred, with sorrow and death, that world was born out of our own wants, our own disordered desires. James talks about this in his letter, where he says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then afterward, that desire, 
has conceived and it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. You see, our own upside-down desires and our backwards wanting eventually results in the deconstruction of God's created world. We have turned the lush garden that was there on the mountaintop into a shadowy desert in the lowlands. Kind of like in the movie Sleeping Beauty, Eve's want to become like God, to become God's equal, turned into a bite right? She took a bite, and by that one bite, she put all of humanity and all of God's beautiful creation into this kind of sleep of death. And that's what happened in the beginning, and that's still what happens in our own lives with our sinful wants and desires. We live in these shadowy lowlands because this is what we wanted. We didn't want the bad consequences that we now are reaping, But we all wanted the sin that gave birth to this place that has torn us under by wars and diseases and hatred and pride. Now I want to point out three things that Isaiah mentions here in this passage about the lowlands where we live. There are three tendencies here that we all have that are inherent in each of us that keep us in our lowlands. This is what brought us to the lowlands and this is what keeps us there. The first tendency is this. We seek fullness in many things that are other than God. Isaiah uses the root word for full or filled in verses 6 to 8 three times. He's emphasizing this, that without God, we try to fill ourselves up with all kinds of things. We look for direction in life to try and find purpose and direction, whether that's through sorcery or superstition or godless science. Materialism is another way we try and fill ourselves up with gold and silver, possessions, cars and technology, right? Amusing ourselves to death. We also fill ourselves up with mighty or military might, military power, whether that's horses and chariots or tanks and nuclear bombs today. And of course, we also have idols. Idols like money, sex and power that we try and fill our hearts with. Why? Why do we chase after such things? Well, we hope that in those things we will find fulfillment, that they will fill us up, that they will give us peace, but they do not last. They never last. They won't fully satisfy us. They cannot give us the peace that we have lost by distancing ourselves from God. Isaiah says here in verse 20 that on the last day when Jesus returns, that all people will throw away their idols throwing them away to the, ro- to the moles and the, the rats in caves. The very things that we f- try to find fulfillment in in this life, we will find to be worthless in the end. Why? Because on the final judgment day, we will see what the idols as they are, shadows of the fullness that can only be found in God. So the first tendency is that that we tend to fill ourselves up with things other than God, and that has brought us to the lowlands, and that keeps us in the lowlands. Secondly, we tend to lift ourselves up. We tend to exalt ourselves in this life. Pride, in that way, destroys us. In verse 12, Isaiah speaks of humanity as proud and lofty. We are self-exalting. Instead of taking the lowest seat, We're always aiming for the highest seat. We're always aspiring for more and more greatness, to be self 
exalted. And this keeps us from loving God first and loving our neighbor as ourselves. This keeps us as well in the lowlands, our pride, our tendency to exalt ourselves. And thirdly, the, the, the third tendency we find here is that we try and hide from God. We try and keep ourselves away from him. Instead of coming to him, we tend to avoid God in our pride and in our search of fullness apart from him. And this is why we find ourselves in the shadows of the lowlands. Our pride has estranged ourselves from God, the Lord of the mountain, who alone can give us peace. Instead of coming to him, we hide from him. And it doesn't have to be that way, is what Isaiah is saying. You don't have to hide from the Lord, not now, not ever, if you only would come to him. Through Isaiah, God is calling all of us again today to come back to him, to go to his mountain. Look at verses 3 through 4 in the text. It's going back to the vision of the mountain. There in this vision, we see that all kinds of people are coming back to God Many peoples will come. The Hebrew word here for many peoples shares the same root words that are found in the name Abraham, right? Abraham, who was called by God to be the father of many peoples, many nations. And here we see the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to Abraham that through him, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. They would find their blessing, that they too would be gathered in to the people of God. And this this is a, a vision from Isaiah of the fulfillment that happens in the Great Commission after Christ's resurrection, that the word of Jesus Christ now is going forth into this world, changing hearts and turning not just the Jewish people back to God, but turning all the peoples back to him by the power of his loving word, his good news, the gospel. So we also see that he, he refers to this this uh, flow of people's coming to him using the language of a stream, like an anti-gravity stream that's, that's in reverse, going back uphill. We've all estranged ourselves from God and his mountain, but now by his grace, through the power of his word, he is creating this anti-gravity river of all peoples coming back to him, streaming back to the Lord. So how can we join in this anti-gravitational river that's flowing back towards God? What can we do to join in? Well, by doing the very opposite of what we have done to estrange ourselves from God. And so the opposite of those three tendencies. First, stop trying to fill yourself with things other than God. Instead, throw away your vain idols, whatever that is for you, whatever you're trying to find fulfillment in, throw it away and instead find fulfillment in God alone. Secondly, stop trying to exalt yourself in life. Be content with the low seat. Be content in God's grace and trust that he will exalt you on the last day. And thirdly, stop hiding from God and said, come to him. Leave the shadowy lowlands and begin to walk in the light of his peace. So even though we have estranged ourselves from God by our own rebellion and sin, and even though we dwell here in the lowlands, God wants us to know this, that he wants all peoples to come to him. He wants all peoples to come to him. How do we know that? Because the God of the mountain has become the God of the lowlands, right? God himself stooped so low, he came into the shadows of this world 
stained and polluted by sin, torn apart by wars and hatred. And there in the shadows, in the deep darkness, he was crucified on the cross for us. In order to bring us back to him, he came so low that after his death, he was literally buried in a tomb under the stone. Jesus Christ, loved ones, is the anointed Lord that after descending from glory into the lowlands was then exalted back into glory and not just for himself but for us as well. And he is currently sitting and ruling and reigning upon God's celestial Mount Zion. The Son of God's descent from glory into the lowlands and his ascension to glory now to sit at the right hand of the Father gives us hope. And that leads us to our third point, the light of hope. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 says, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, God is calling his people, his covenant community, to live in the shining reality of his presence and his promises and all that he has accomplished for us through Christ. God doesn't want us to just drag our feet for the rest of our lives through this lowlands. God is calling us to action here. He wants us to live in a certain way with holy purpose. After all, we have a glorious mountain of peace and joy that we are headed towards, that is ours, our inheritance. So when we see the problems in our culture and the world around us, and we, we often, what do we do? We tend to hand all of the responsibility and all of the blame. We shift that all away from ourselves to politicians. And is that true? Is it true that they are the reason why society is messed up? Is there nothing that we can do about it? In his book, The Second Mountain, author David Brooks, he looks back at the biggest changes in American culture and he concludes that politicians are not the ones that have led change in society. He says, instead, it's moral activists and cultural pioneers. Those who shape the manners and mores are true legislators of humanity. They wield the greatest power of influence. It usually starts with a subculture, a small group of creative individuals who find the current moral ecology oppressive and alienating. So they go back in history and update an old moral ecology that seems to provide a better way to live. And they create a lifestyle that others find attractive. If you can create a social movement that people want to join, they will bend their energies and ideas to you. Let me repeat that last phrase. If you can create a social movement that people want to join, they will bend their energies and ideas to you. That is what Jesus is calling us to, to be a subculture in the midst of this larger broken culture, to be a small group of individuals committed to Jesus and his way of living, which is better, a better way to live. In this broken world, in the midst of the lowlands, Jesus wants us to create a meaningful lifestyle that other people might look at and find attractive and be pulled and drawn to it. Isaiah gives us this imagery here in the passage of peoples melting down their weapons, be it guns or swords, whatever, and then beating them into tools. For what? For gardening, for building, for creative purpose, for good. That picture 
of end-time peace should be visible in our life together now. It's not something we need to wait for. This is what Jesus referred to when he told his followers in the famous Sermon on the Mount, you are all the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In a sense, so that they might be attracted by the way of living that you share together. So in, this, in that teaching, Jesus doesn't say in the second person singular, you as an individual, but rather the second person plural, ye or ye, you all, right? And so he's calling us as a group not to be lonely little lights on a hill. No, he calls us to be a community of light in the city of Ontario, in Southern California. In his commentary here on Isaiah, Ray Ortland says, when believers walk in the light, we Christians become a prophetic presence in our generation as the nations can see their, most, their own most deeply desired future in our life together. That is what is before us, this great opportunity to show the world what following Jesus can look like. Now, a family in our church recently recommended to me a book series for young adults that I'm excited to purchase and, and begin to read. I did some studies, and this book series is called The Green Ember. It's written by S.D. Smith, uh, and he's this committed Christian who wrote these novels for children, but the Christian hope is, is all throughout it. And the hope is expressed uh, in this way that very fits with what we see in Isaiah here. In that story, in The Green Ember, the main characters are these rabbits that live in the great wood. Their homeland's been overtaken by evil, but it is not a story only about brokenness. It's about healing as well. So the protagonists, the main characters, they find hope in a community that lives at Cloud Mountain. Uh, even though the great wood is kind of raised by these destructive fires, uh, the wars, and etc., the community at Cloud Mountain have a chant that they repeat in triumph. And this is their chant of hope. It shall not be so in the mended wood. It shall not be so in the mended wood. The people at Cloud Mountain were bound together by that common hope and their commitment to see it become a reality. The anticipation of the mended wood, their great wood healed and restored. And loved ones, that is a picture of what we could be as well. Better yet, what we should be. Our common hope for the mending of God's world, the renewing of his great creation is a strong tie that should hold us together. So we too need to begin to live in anticipation of that future that is promised to us in Christ. Even as the world falls apart around us, we, we must teach our hearts to respond with the triumph of hope that despite the dangers and evil all around us, we have this hope that it shall not be so in the mended world. It shall not be so in God's new creation. The Green Ember series ends with the realization of their hope, which fits so well with the hope we have in Christ. It reads this way. And think of this as our own vision of God's renewal of his world. It says, And the great wood did mend. Brighter and brighter it shined. With more and more light to share. 
mending begat mending, and the healing grew like a disease in reverse until the wholeness spread to the edge of every map. It's beautiful. Loved ones, that is our hope in Christ. And in fact, Isaiah, in chapter 11, verse 9, he'll circle back and come to this mountain of the Lord, and there he describes it in this way, saying that nothing will harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What he's promising there is that God's holy mountain of purity, peace, prosperity, that will encompass the whole earth. The whole earth will be his sacred space where he dwells with us and gives us his peace. And so since that is our hope for the future, it is before us. Why work now? What is our purpose for working for peace here and now? Because here and now is where the mending will take place. Here and now is where we are. Jesus taught in the Gospels that the kingdom of God is here and it is already coming. He said the kingdom of God is in your midst. In a sense, the mountain is already here. That means that God's kingdom is already breaking into the world. The mountain of the Lord has its foothold here in the present evil age. First John says it this way, the darkness, it's passing away and the true light is already shining. That was true when John wrote it, and it's still true today. The darkness, as dark as it may, might be for you and the world around us, it is passing away. The evil of this world is on its way out. Where is the proof? The Lord Jesus Christ, exalted in his resurrection from the dead. He has ascended that glorious mountain for us. His eternal reign has begun. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. Jesus is coming back to bring a final shaking and a final mending of this world. So come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize our own sinfulness and how we have brought ourselves into the lowlands by estranging ourselves from you and from one another, by our wanton desires, wanting things that ultimately destroy us and have deconstructed your beautiful creation. But we rejoice in your promise and the fulfillment of it through the person and work of Christ that we have this great hope that we can now come to you and walk in the light of that hope that it shall not be so in your mended world. Lord, give us that hope and let us be a community that is a city on a hill a light shining for others to see that it might attract and draw others into the way of living or following Christ, which is better and promises true fulfillment, true peace. We ask that you would work this into our own hearts and that you would bring others into fellowship with us in it. We ask in Jesus' name.